Yo, 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 and a yar har even. Yeah, it's one of those kinds of days. Greetings, my esteemed colleagues. It is me, the Hamburglar. Welcome to episode two of the Acutely Obtuse podcast, the only science show to take away brain cells. What can I say? The current black market rate for them is incredible. Have you seen rents these days? I need the money. I swear you need to be the CEO of a sham charity just to afford a cardboard box in Wyoming. And that's not a dig on Wyoming. I'm sure it's a lovely place and we talked enough about Wyoming and its massive poops in the last episode. That is the past. And in the words of my emo icon, we gotta let the past die, kill it if we have to. So I'm sorry, friend, but there will be no dissection of dominant dung. However, this does not mean that we do not have a humdinger of an episode planned for today. We'll see if I can execute it with adequate humdingery, but before we can even get started, there is a more pressing matter that I must address, which is to ask you, how are you doing today? I hope you are doing absolutely fantastic, but if not, that is perfectly okay. Take care of yourself and do whatever you gotta do. I am doing surprisingly not terrible. It's a beautiful Sunday evening, and I've made it through another week alive. I guess that in and of itself is something worth celebrating. I am, of course, here with my elegant fish family, and boy, are they just especially reveling in their elegance today. The weather is unseasonably gorgeous, and the evening sun is glimmering against their shiny scales, except for Shadow the Hedgehog. All the other fish are, well, I was told they were gold doubloon mollies, but they don't look much like the photos you find on Google. For one, they are decently smaller, but they do have somewhat similar coloring, but their body shape is different? I don't know. Maybe they're a cross of a few different things, but the point is, they have shiny, orangish, goldish skin that glimmers in the sun with black speckled spots throughout. Meanwhile, Shadow the Hedgehog, I was told, was a Dalmatian molly, though again, he is not quite like the photos you'll find online. For one, he has only like one white spot on his underbelly or something and is otherwise just black. So he doesn't glimmer like the others because he's our little emo boy, but we love him all the same. Honestly, he has a good reason to be emo. His origin story is quite sad. So when I picked him out, he had a friend with him who swam everywhere with him. They were much more like what you'd expect from a Dalmatian molly with white spots all over. And there was no way I was going to separate Shadow and his friend. Like I said, they literally went everywhere together and stuck together like glue, so I was going to take them both so they could live together forever in happiness. Unfortunately, there was a problem, and it had to do with Shadow's friend's small size. They were quite small. Like, really little. So when the person went to scoop them out, the little guy fell through the net and onto the floor. Thankfully, they were okay and got put back to safety quickly, but because of that experience, they were super stressed and the person at the store told me they'd have to stay with them so as to be able to calm down and be well taken care of, which absolutely was the right call, but it did mean that Shadow and his friend were split up. So that was a scarring experience that still haunts me, but I've done the best I can to give Shadow a good life in light of the circumstances, and like I mentioned last episode, he is quite sociable and has been very good at making new friends, so I think he'll be alright in the end. Trauma aside, we got a lot of science stuff to talk about today, including an <clears throat> expose on the science news industry. Yeah, I said it. I will be the first and only person ever to have criticized science news. I know, 
I know, quite bold of me, but to kick things off here, one of the girthiest stories of the week, at least in my view, absolutely must be this whole lunar time thing. Right as we in the good old US of ah prepare to take away one hour of sleep for reasons, the blokes over in Europe are pushing for the moon to have its own time zone, which like, the more you think about it, kind of makes sense. Like, if we really are going to continue this definitely not short-sighted idea of making people live on the moon, again, an idea that definitely will not result in any adverse consequences for health, society, or humanity as a whole, have you even seen Shark Side of the Moon on Tubi? Then those people are going to need a way to keep track of time, and it's not like you can just use Earth time zones because you're not on Earth, you're on the moon, that's like the whole point. Although that is apparently how missions have been taking place so far, the Associated Press claims each country that sends a mission to the moon has just been using their own time zone as reference. Which, yeah, as more countries start sending more people to the moon, and those people might end up needing to collaborate on tasks and things, you can start to see how this might, might become an issue if all the people living and working together on the moon can't agree what time it is. It would be like a big old game of whose time is it anyways. This is the same sort of dilemma that needed to be resolved with the building of the International Space Station, which again, makes sense. You have people from all over the world in there. You're already going to be fighting over who gets the last piece of chalk they call ice cream. You don't need to be fighting over who's right about the time either. Furthermore, time runs different on the moon because of that whole time relativity thing from what we all used to naively believe would be the lowest point of Christopher Nolan's career. Oh, 2015 me, you innocent soul, so pure, so unaware of the existence of Tenet. I still haven't finished that movie, I got like halfway through and then I started to fall asleep, I was so disappointed, but anyways, Clocks on the moon gain 56 milliseconds per day, and there is also a difference in time depending on if you are actually on the moon or just in the orbit of the moon, so yeah, it's a mess. As of now, nobody has come to a decision on what the moon time will be, just that we really need one. So we'll have to see what moon time ends up being. I wonder if moon time will sun someday be added to those drop-down lists on calendars when you have to pick what time zone you're using. So you'll have Eastern time, Pacific time, moon time. All of my meetings will be set in moon time, and I'm afraid everyone else is just gonna have to deal with that. What can I say? I'm a astrology sign. You know who is even more of an astrology sign than me, though? This glassy-winged sharpshooter who flings pea bubbles with an anal catapult. Such an astrology sign. And thank you, writers at Ars Technica, for that immaculate title. In my view, nothing else in your career could ever top this. So, this bug, just a little guy who drinks tons of water for the sole purpose of making a whole lot of pee that it can then fling around and create the ultimate golden showers. The guy can even expel as much as 300 times its own body weight in pee per day. Take that, Wyoming. Your dinos may have mountain-sized poops, but can they pee 300 times their own body weight? Damn it, I promised I wouldn't bring Wyoming into this episode. Well, like I said in the last episode, I promise nothing and have no promise. I'm just an unpredictable, unchained, uneducated, sharp-speaking American who tells it like it is. And if Wyoming needs to be brought into a conversation, then I will bring Wyoming into the conversation. Unlike some of my peers in this field, 
I am not afraid of Big Wyoming. One of these days, I will expose everything Big Wyoming has been covering up with their gigantic dinosaur feces. But for today, let's just talk about insects who are phenomenal at pissing. In fact, they're so good, they can pee at rates ten times faster than a Lamborghini. I wonder what uses that could have in everyday life. Imagine how much easier power washing could be. According to Georgia Tech, though, one of the real uses for this remarkable ability is energy conservation. Basically, here's what's going on. The insect whose name I will now struggle to pronounce, <clears throat> Homalodosica vitrepenis? I think it has penis in the name. I'm just going to go with vitropenis. Loves to drink plant sap. But the problem is, this sap is 95% water. So to get all the nutrition they need, they need to drink a lot of water. Hence, the massive amounts of pee-pee. The insect has a special mechanism to deal with this, though. A mechanism that basically allows the insect to... Take lemons and make lemonade, if you will. A lot of lemonade. The insect uses what is called an anal stylus. If I were immature, I would make a joke about the Nintendo DS, but as we all know, I am incredibly adult-like. The insect uses the anal stylus to squeeze out a drop of pee and then fling it super fast. The researchers note this flinging of pee has several benefits, the first of which is the aforementioned energy consumption. Flinging pee like this takes four to eight times less energy than peeing normally. And by flinging their pee away from their body, the insect makes it harder for predators to track them. What I also learned from this discovery is that there are other insects referred to as <clears throat> frass shooters, butt flickers, and turd hurlers, which are all incredible. You know, in some ways, I could call myself a turd hurler. I mean, here I am, hurling a bunch of information about junk food science, not really contributing to the world or anything. In some respects, we are all turd hurlers. Maybe I should even go as far as to call my audience turd hurlers. What do you think, turd hurlers? Do you want to join the movement and hurl some turds along with me? Moving past that, in the end, pee, 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 pee flinging is kind of ingenious. Will we humans someday evolve to fling our pee as well? Who can say? What can be said, though, is a giant Jurassic-era insect was found in an Arkansas Walmart. Honestly, what more is there to be said? With, 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 with headlines like these, I'm going to be out of a non-existent job. You don't need me. You could just go to Google News, read all these headlines, chortle a bit, and go back to your day. Except you should not be happy to use Google News because they are lying to you. But that's for later in the episode. Now is for Walmart Jurassic Park bugs. Our story begins in 2012 when Michael... I am going to mess up your last name, I am so sorry, Skvarla, the director of Penn State's Insect Identification Lab, found a big bug in the facade of a Walmart. Michael misidentified the insect originally, but in 2020, when Michael was teaching a course on his personal insect collection, he discovered that, wait a minute, this is an incredibly special insect whose name I genuinely cannot even attempt. If you really want to know what the name of the insect is, just Google Walmart Big Bug. You might have to sift through all the other terrifying things discovered in Walmart, but eventually you'll get to what you're looking for. What's even weirder about all this, though, 
the whole big giant lace bug found in the Walmart, not what you'll find on the internet if you're looking into bugs in Walmarts, is that it is still a mystery as to why this bug eventually disappeared from North America, and yet here it is in a Walmart? They truly do have everything. There are many possible explanations for why the bug disappeared from North America, some of which include urbanization. So there you have it. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the giant bug race. And in some respects, the Walmart killed the giant bug and now is the only place where you can find giant bug says a lot about capitalism. Maybe the giant bug chose to die there. Wait, I'm sorry, the bug didn't die. Maybe the giant bug chose to go to the Walmart. Uh, to say something about the state we are all, the world we are all living in. In reality, though, people believe the bug was likely attracted to the lights at the Walmart and hung around outside. So nobody sees this bug for half a century. And then there he is. Just chilling outside of Walmart. He went to get some milk and cigarettes and never came back. You know who else is leaving us for milk and cigarettes and never coming back? The moon. Our moon. Scientists have discovered that our big cheesy friend in the sky is starting to drift from us. Now... I don't know if the moon happens to listen to Acutely Obtuse, the podcast, but just in case the moon is a fellow turd hurler, then moon, I implore you, please don't leave me. All of my other friends and close partners are abandoning me. The last thing I need is the flippin' moon to start drifting away from me as well. I know I haven't been as present in our relationship as I should be. I'm just going through it right now. It's not like I don't want to work on myself and be a better person for you, but respectfully, do you know how insanely hard it is to get therapy here, let alone health insurance? Health insurance is just impossible to come by anymore. Maybe I need to look outside the Arkansas Walmart. I bet that's where it's hiding. So, Moon, please. Just give me one more chance. Well, it doesn't seem like the moon is listening because it continues to drift away 3.8 centimeters away from the Earth every year, according to NASA. Scientists were able to discover that the moon is drifting because of they had some reflective panels that they placed on the moon and they used that to measure the distance from the Earth to the moon. I'm not quite sure how it works, but I'm assuming it has something to do with measuring light and the time it takes for light to move between the Earth and the reflective things on the moon. And then you can do some math to get the distance from that and find that the moon is starting to leave us. Although maybe we should not be too alarmed because if you do even more math, it becomes painfully obvious that the moon is not drifting away at this rate always because if the moon were actually drifting away from Earth at this rate every year, that means the collision on Earth that made the moon would have happened 1.5 billion years ago. And since all other evidence points to that collision happening a few billion years before that, yeah, this just doesn't add up. So what's actually happening? It all maybe has to do with something called Milankovitch cycles. I'm sorry, I cannot speak normally on most days and they throw difficult words at me. It becomes very difficult. Milankovitch cycles. These cycles are small changes in the Earth's orbit and axis, and such cycles can affect the distance between the Earth and the Moon and be a possible explanation for why the Moon is able to move away from us at its current rate without having crashed into Earth so recently. As with most relationships, it seems that the true reason for Earth's breakup with the Moon is a bit mutual. 
Both us on Earth and the moon need to do some serious reflection and work on ourselves to try and fix this fraying bond. But seriously, why is therapy so difficult to get? And I'm not even talking about the health insurance side of it anymore. I'm talking about therapists. Yeah, someone needs to call out the therapist because some of this stuff is ridiculous. When I had an especially bad period of going through it last year, a close friend of mine offered to help me get the whole therapy thing sorted out. I'm incredibly grateful for all their help, but in the end, it was fruitless because of the way therapy is run in the good old US of ah! Firstly, all of the therapists were super adamant that they could only take patients during their office hours. Office hours, which for all of them were between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. on weekdays. That was it. No other options. I was working a 40-hour week contract. No benefits, of course, because of the whole contract thing. They were basically trying to force me to work full-time for them without providing any benefits or helping out with taxes or anything. It was a bit legally sketchy, but the point was I was forced to be in the office all day. And when I tried to express this to the therapist, they all got frustrated with me and were like, well, can you just figure it out? Or they would try to act like they were being so gracious to me and might, might, might be kind enough to make the incredible sacrifice of letting me have a 5.30 p.m. appointment if and only if it happened to work out well for their schedule. And then if I was even lucky enough to get through all of that, Keep in mind, I was in the bad place and it took everything within me to reach out to these people in the first place. They would then get incredibly exasperated with me when I asked questions about pricing and things like that. I've never had real therapy before. How was I supposed to know how this all worked out? And I live in a place with a large, younger population, so you would assume the therapist should be used to explaining how the money side of all this stuff works out to first-timers, but no. And furthermore, your job is to work with the mentally ill and struggling. If you get exasperated at me asking simple questions and requesting the smallest of accommodations, how are you going to act when I actually get into the icky stuff? Sorry, I just really needed to rant about that. There are many good therapists in the world who do incredible work. I know lots of people who have found such. I just have yet to find them. What can I say? I'm a bit spicy today. You know who else is feeling a bit spicy? The sun. Experts are claiming the sun is about to enter a period of peak activity that could potentially last for years meaning there will be even more solar flares, storms, and bursts of energy than usual. This is in part due to the sun's cycles, as every 11 years the sun becomes a bit unstable, resulting in the magnetic north pole and magnetic south pole kind of doing a bit of a flippy flop. As a result, the sun's guts become a bit goopy and gurgly and the sun starts belching out a bit more than usual. This could potentially mess with a bunch of infrastructure on Earth, but I'm sure we will definitely address it and prepare accordingly like the responsible and intelligent creatures that we are. Speaking of the great intellect of the human race, apparently there are people wanting to plug volcanoes with concrete. Excuse me, what? All across the internet, the modern day philosophers, the Platos and Aristotles of our age, are pontificating on potential ways to stop volcanoes from erupting. Such geologic activity has wrecked havoc on human civilization a multitude of times, but how can we stop such belching of fire from the guts of the earth? Why, just plug it up! 
I'm sure there will be absolutely no potential consequences of plugging up one of the Earth's ways of releasing pressure. I mean, have you ever tried that on yourself? How do you think that's going to go? Many experts have rightly pointed out that if we blocked volcanoes with concrete, there would be less places for the Earth to expel gas in a mild manner, resulting in increased pressure and, guess what, more explosions with greater intensity. So no, oh great thinkers, please, oh please, do not plug up the volcanoes with concrete. Please. Like, why? Why on this green earth would you even think something like that would be a good idea? Since we're on the topic of pseudo-intellectuals with no real intelligence trying to solve our problems in ways that would in fact make them worse, Elon Musk. I really never wanted to have to talk about him. In fact, I made a promise to myself I would try to never talk about him on this podcast if I could avoid it. But unfortunately, we must address this creature because he is starting to mess with astronomy. I can let a lot of things slide, but once you mess with astronomy, buddy, you've gone too far. This comes via El Pais, and I'm going to read their headline and subheader because I think it just states what's happening quite perfectly. Elon Musk satellites are ruining the view of space telescopes. Quote, it's getting worse. And then the subheader reads, up to 6% of the observations made with Hubble are being spoiled by the Starlink network, which will multiply tenfold its number of satellites in the sky with the deployment of mega constellations. This... This just makes me genuinely depressed. Like, I don't even have the energy to be angry about this. I just feel like taking a nap forever. 6%. 6% of Hubble observations have been blocked by this expletive's ridiculous satellites. I know there are some smart people out there calling for more conversations about space pollution and all of that and all the overcrowding and junk in our orbit. And this, this just makes me agree with them even more. And now they're planning to release more satellites, which will only make it even harder to get good images of space. Like, what the hell, man? I try to avoid this kind of science news because it always depresses me. Stuff like this, and coincidentally, Elon Musk's plan to colonize Mars, or Jeff Bezos and everything he wants to do with space. Space is this precious, beautiful little thing, one of the very few things shared by everyone around the world, no matter where you are, no matter what your world is like, we all have the same sky, and these greedy, good-for-nothing grifters want to take that from us so they can live out their sick, selfish fantasies. The article includes some photos that were photobombed by the satellites, and I highly recommend you check them out because you can really see how big of an issue this is. The article goes on to talk about how the International Astronomical Union has called for action to be taken on this issue, and how observatories across the world are already facing issues because of these satellites. I don't have the time to go into all the details, but I highly recommend you check out the article for yourself. There's a lot of interviews with astronomers who provide their expertise on why this is an issue and how it concerns them. Overall, I'm just sad. I don't care who you are or what you believe or anything like that. You need to realize these people do not care about you. At all. They'd rather see you suffer than see some numbers go down. Adding on to this, the whole story that broke recently about the FDA denying Elon Musk's request to put frickin' brain implants in people. In case you didn't know, those same brain implants have reportedly killed 1,500 animals in four years. Not only is that bad enough on its own, but then they wanted to put it in people and just 
see what happens? They do not care about you. Do not let them take things from you. Do not let them take our skies and our brains from us. Well, on that depressing note, I think it is about time we take a good old break so we can come back refreshed and ready to tackle more depressing science discussions. Don't worry, I promise I have some fun stuff and some positive news to highlight as well, so don't you dare go anywhere. Don't you dare leave me like the moon did. Welcome back, Turd Hurlers, to the Acutely Obtuse Podcast, the turd hurliest podcast on this side of the universe. The competition in Andromeda is just ridiculous. Now, all episode I've been teasing our next discussion topic, which relates to some issues I have with science news garbage stuff. Let's start with the not-as-depressing thing, and then we'll work our way up to the slightly more depressing stuff. So, for the not-as-depressing thing, I'm gonna call out Google News. I know, I know, Google News is not the best source of science information, but as far as a general aggregate of various information sources all across the internet goes, it is difficult to find something quite as effective as Google News. But that being said, I have a lot of issues with Google News, the most press pressing of which being the kinds of sources Google News chooses to prop up. For my current gig, I am required to pay attention to current events and read a lot of news. Google News is the easiest place to start because you get a sort of general idea of the conversation in the media right now. While you may at first see a lot of reputable news sources, the more time you spend on Google News, the more you start to realize how much of the service is focused on propping up unreputable sources. The amount of times I have come across just depressingly disgusting headlines from, you know, certain sources is infuriating. The way Google News aggregates its stories is that they have these little blocks for each story. Usually, the biggest link in the block will be to a reputable news source, and then you'll have a bunch of other various links to worse sources. So, for example, let's say some politician gets cancer or something. The big block will probably be your standard reporting, saying so-and-so got cancer. But over in the little links, you'll have headlines from certain sources I will not name here, saying things like, so-and-so gets their just desserts. Or opinion, why so-and-so getting cancer is a good thing, and stuff like that. And it just gets incredibly frustrating and depressing and since spending more time reading news for my job, I have realized how utterly reprehensible most of the industry is. Just like, for so many outlets, there are no morals at all. And even for outlets you might assume are reputable, there is a shocking amount of disgusting stuff being pushed. A great example is the New York Times. I'm not going to get into it all here, but suffice it to say, the New York Times has been a bit overly happy to publish hateful and bigoted think pieces and reports. So basically, it's all a bit garbage, and you have to constantly be thinking critically and catching everything to avoid just sinking into the muck. Which brings us to the science side of Google News, which is where I, probably obviously, sometimes pull stories for this podcast. Having to spend all day reading news and going to the science section for reprieve is some of the impetus behind this show. But lately, it's been a bit less refreshing. Obviously, when you read any pop science outlet, you need to make sure to pay attention to the sources and make sure the articles are accurately representing the studies done by scientists. 
Which can be hard for a number of reasons, not the least of which being how many journal articles are hidden behind huge paywalls, making it even easier for certain publications to misrepresent the research and give the general public basically no way to fact check them on it. Even if you can get into the actual research itself though, you might need to look into who is funding the research and why to see if there are any ulterior motives for why the research just so happened to come to a conclusion that benefits the people funding it. One of the most famous examples of this is with the tobacco industry funding research that conveniently supports the consumption of tobacco products. Weird how that works out. The same has occurred with the alcohol industry, the sugar industry, the oil industry, and a swath of other industries. And that's just the stuff we know about. Who knows how much other stuff is out there being funded by some shady organizations? My point is, it is very difficult for the average person just reading the science news to be sure what they're reading is even true. This all brings me to my latest science news pet peeve, trying to shame people who take meds for mental illness, especially anxiety and depression. Every month, it seems, there is a new wave of articles that love to claim new research finds depression medication is only as effective as a placebo, or new research finds exercise treats anxiety better than medication. When you actually read these articles and then read the, the research behind them, you start to see a much different and more complicated story. Just for today's example, we're going to go over the exercise, cures anxiety, you know, so get off your meds, sheeple articles, since those have been making the rounds recently. A lot of these articles state that exercise is more effective at treating anxiety than medication and counseling. Okay, that's a pretty bold claim. Let's see what they have to back it up. Once you actually read the articles, the first thing you'll notice is that the language starts to become less assertive, instead saying things like, exercise can be helpful in treating anxiety, or exercise can be important to coping with anxiety. Already, that is wildly different than the statements made in the headline. We went from, meds don't work, just lift bro, to a much calmer, Exercise can be good for your mental health. Let's investigate the actual research here, which is titled Effectiveness of Physical Activity Interventions for Improving Depression, Anxiety, and Distress. An Overview of Systematic Reviews. Okay, that doesn't say anything about exercise being better than meds. Let's look at the conclusion and relevance in the prelude to the article. Quote, physical activity is, widely, is highly beneficial for improving symptoms of depression, anxiety, and distress across a wide range of adult populations, including the general population, people diagnosed with mental health disorders, and people with chronic disease. Physical activity should be a mainstay in the management of depression, anxiety, and psychological distress. End quote. Once again, no mention of medication at all. At least in the summaries of these research, nowhere does it say exercise is more effective than medication or that people should not be taking medication or anything what the science news articles are proclaiming. All the experts have claimed is that, according to their work, it seems exercise provides benefits to mental health and they therefore recommend it as part of treatment for mental illness. Now, once we get into the introduction of the paper, there is a mention of how in some countries like the United States, medication is used first before lifestyle changes. However, again, there is no evidence in the paper that lifestyle changes are necessarily more effective than medication. Because that's not what this paper is about! The paper is about proving the hypothesis that physical activity is an effective method for improving mental health. At no point does the paper conduct research comparing the outcomes of people on medication versus people only doing physical activity or anything like that. 
The paper sometimes refers to other research showing exercise may be as effective as therapy and medication, but the paper itself does not support this claim, or actively review it, or challenge it, or provide greater context, or anything like that at all. Nor does this research evaluate the different life situations different people are in, how ability, class, or a host of other things can affect one's ability to exercise, or how people have different brain chemistry that can react differently to different medications or exercises, or anything like the headlines of these science articles are saying this paper supports. And also, just a personal anecdote. Even if we could get a final study that confidently peer-reviewed a million times and replicated a million times to confidently prove that exercise can be as effective as meds, has anyone ever considered that when you're depressed and can barely keep your eyes open, let alone get out of bed, maybe medication could be more useful than telling someone to just go for an hour-long jog or something. My point is, science is complicated, and science news loves to distill complicated matters into simple narratives that can often be dangerous. If your medication is working and your doctors are all happy with everything, then please, for the love of cocaine bear, please keep taking your medication. Don't make labor, don't make major life decisions based on what some underpaid writer in a clickbait farm pushed out to make rent. And if you're like me and have wonderful parents who think medication is the devil's hemorrhoids, you can probably understand why this trend in science journalism frustrates me so much. In related science journalism things that frustrate me, you know how earlier I was talking about Google News propping up unreputable sources? Friend, the other day, when I was scrolling through Google News, I had an aneurysm. You will not believe who I found Google News promoting. Would you believe? In the middle of the science section, with its own tile no less, was an article from mother-loving Answers in Genesis. I swear my soul aged a hundred years when I saw that. For those of you lucky enough to not know what Answers in Genesis is, Answers in Genesis, or AIG, is an American evangelical Christian group that takes a literal interpretation of the Bible and tries to do science that proves the Bible is literally true and evolution is evil and secular scientists roast babies like marshmallows or something. They also own and operate the infamous Creation Museum, a whole museum that tries to prove evolution is evil and wrong and that God literally created everything in six days and the earth is only 6,000 years old and all of that wonderful junk. I don't have the time today to go into everything Answers in Genesis related. I swear you could make a whole docu-series on the Creation Museum alone, but suffice it to say... Ooh... That's the second time I've said that this episode. Suffice it to say, Answers in Genesis is far, far from a reputable science source. They think dinosaurs and humans lived together. That's not a joke. They literally believe dinosaurs and humans were on Earth at the same time. I wish I was making this up. So yeah. Science journalism, while cool sometimes, can also be kind of gross, and it is important to acknowledge the gross parts of things we care about. Like the fact that my fish eat their own young. I love them to death, but I would be happy to never see them eating their own children ever again. Please and thank you. Since we've gotten through all that depressing stuff, though, now for some good news. NASA's DART mission was a success. Remember that whole thing when we threw a rocket into an asteroid to see what happens? Yeah, well it turns out what happens is you change the movement of the asteroid and even now, all this time later, 
it keeps leaving. So that's a nice thing to have. At least we now know that theoretically, if a world-ending asteroid were to come take us to that big waffle house in the sky, we could firmly say no. We prefer the waffle house down here on Earth. That's what's really a sham. Not science journalism or anything like that. Waffle House. Have you ever seen the prices at Waffle House? It's not like it's a nice place or anything. And yet they want you to refinance your student loans for a dry, burnt waffle. In other positive news, NASA finds the whole Artemis mission to be a big success and will be holding a press conference this Tuesday to discuss what they've discovered. So if nothing else, we at least have that to look forward to. We may not have a solid date for Boss Baby back in the crib season 2, but we do have a solid date for the Artemis press conference. Those two things are of equal importance to civilization. You know what else is pretty important? Canada looking for water on the moon. Yep, Canada is finally sending a rover to the moon. This will be the first time, so that must be exciting. They will be sending the rover to the far side of the moon to try and see if they can find some frozen water buried beneath the surface. And I really hope they do, because if they were to, if they were to actually find frozen water on the moon, that would be monumental. What frustrates me is that of course, there are people who are only excited about this for the potential of having people drink it when they live on the moon. Why can't we just discover cool stuff to discover cool stuff? Why does everything have to have some sort of utility? It's not like you or me have any inherent utility to the great machine, and yet we are still deserving of life. My fish have no utility, but I would still kill for them. I just want to know if there is water on the moon because that could be important for our understanding of the moon, its origin, and Earth, and its origin, and our solar system, and also it would just be cool, okay? Everyone is so cynical these days. And I'm a cynical person! So the fact that I'm having to call these other people for being cynical is just... lovely. In other cynical news, we're still trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. It will definitely work this time, guys, we swear. Remember when they said the woolly mammoth would be brought back by now? Needless to say, it is, uh, not. And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. It just seems like bringing a creature designed for a very different world into our own for the sake of, like, what? Just because we can? is maybe not a great idea. I think there's a famous quote from a famous movie about something like that. Anyway, you know that big black hole at the center of our galaxy whose gravity is what's kind of keeping the whole thing together? So it turns out there's a baby star hanging out around there. Please someone help him. The star is only a few tens of thousands of years old, meaning it is quite young. So young, it's even younger than humanity. The baby's name is X3A, and he has his father's eyes. His father being a bunch of dust that was circulating around the black hole and then gave birth to X3A. At least that's the expected story. We have yet to run DNA tests to know for sure. X3A is also, like... A very big, dense baby, denser than it should be. This could in part be due to it being near that black hole and having a whole bunch of nutrition to suck in from all the other stuff. He's been drinking his milk and is already growing up to be big and strong. Let's hope that X3A continues to live a long and happy life, even though he is currently teetering on the edge of oblivion. We've all been there, though. You can make it out X3A, I promise. The ones who have yet to make it out, though, are the cocaine hippos, because they've become an invasive species in Colombia. Now I know what you're thinking. First we had cocaine bear, and now cocaine hippos. Hollywood has just completely lost all creativity, but unfortunately these are not hippos that did cocaine, 
These are hippos bought with cocaine money by Pablo Escobar. He brought four with him to his home, and now there are like 70, so these cocaine hippos are becoming a bit of a problem. If they are not stopped, there could be up to 400 of these cocaine hippos in just a few years. And I thought my fish were reproducing crazy fast. These hippos have become such a problem to the environment that they were named a toxic invasive species by Colombia's government last year, and now they will need to be removed. Goodbye, sweet cocaine hippos. May you have a better life in an environment you are much more suited for. I relate a lot to those cocaine hippos. I, too, do not feel as though I live in an environment I am suited for. Really, I belong on Venus, because like me, Venus might be kinda squishy. So you know how on Earth our surface is all broken up into like tectonic plates and stuff like that? Well, as of now, we think Venus is just one big plate holding one big pizza pie. As such, we're not quite sure how the whole surface of Venus thing would work out, so scientists use data from the Magellan Orbiter to try and get a better understanding of the surface of Venus, and it seems like the planet might have some awfully thin skin. Also like me, this could also mean the surface might be quite flexible, unlike me. One of the things I famously am, though, is alive, and new discoveries from the asteroid Ryuju show that it has the building blocks for life on it. There has long been kind of a hypothesis going around that rather than all the stuff essential for life bubbling up on Earth over a long period of time, asteroids may have helped out and brought some of that stuff to the party for us. The asteroid in question here was found to have 15 amino acids, which would help build proteins and stuff. This is especially significant considering this stuff is existing out in the vacuum of space, an area not exactly famous for teeming with life and life-building stuff, but hey, if these amino acids can remain intact while in the middle of space, maybe we can get through the tough times. Sticking to this whole life kick I've got going right now, we might have discovered a new, a new stepping stone in the origin of life? Ada Yonath, a structural biologist, came up with the idea for a proto-ribosome. This proto-ribosome is basically an incredibly simple little kind of, uh, kind of alive thing of RNA with some amino acids that can do like one little motion. In the lab, Jonathan and her team have constructed this proto-ribosome as a primitive RNA machine that can move two amino acids around. It might not sound like much, but this discovery is pretty incredible. Going into the science of all of it is quite complicated and above my knowledge, but the basic idea is this proto-ribosome provides one more step or one more link in the chain from primordial goop to life, bringing us one big step closer to actually understanding where life comes from and how it was originally made. Which, you know, is kind of incredibly important. Like, the idea that there may be a fifth layer to the Earth we didn't know about. According to scientists at the Australian National University, there is a fifth iron-nickel alloy ball inside the inner core of the Earth. The team was able to discover this by studying more advanced seismic waves than previous research had access to. And by looking at this, we were able to discover Earth may be a bit more complicated than we had originally anticipated. This discovery is not only important because it's cool, but also because it could potentially explain some of the Earth's magnetic field and even hint as a significant impact that hit the core of the planet. Fascinating stuff we'll need more research to look into, but one thing you won't need to research to see for yourself is a new comet that will be coming by Earth in 2024. Well, it's not exactly new, but it's new to us, so ha! I guess. 
This comet, titled C2023A3, will be making its way towards Earth for the first time in 80,000 years in the fall of 2024. Some estimates believe it may even be as bright as a star, and I seriously hope that is true, because I was incredibly disappointed by this year's comet ZTF. I found where it should be in the sky, I triangulated its position and all that stuff, but I still couldn't see it because light pollution and junk. I've tried to bring myself solace by saying, well, I was technically looking at it even if I couldn't see it, but man, it's just not the same. Is it too much to just want to see a comet for once in my life? Please? If I can't see a comet, please at least tell me I get to see the northern lights before I pass away. Seeing those things is one of my life's dreams, as I'm sure it is for many people because it's so incredibly cool looking. In certain parts of the world, it's been easier to see lately, and lots of people have been sharing incredibly breathtaking images, and while yes, it's so cool and I'm very glad you're sharing those images with us, I still seriously wish I could actually see it with my own eyes. As nice as a picture is, seeing something for yourself is always way better. Another thing I hope to see with my own eyes is the Dwarf Planet series, which will be at its brightest this month. So I'll for sure be looking for it, though I doubt I'll be able to find it with my luck. Regardless, I encourage you to look out for series and see if you can see series for yourself. There's a funny rhyme or alliteration there if I had the energy to come up with one. But I don't. Be sure to use the Constellation Leo as your guide to help you find the planet Ceres, or just do what I do and use the Stellaria map. That thing is incredibly useful. I love it so much. Something I don't love though is the fact that scientists are trying to make AI using human brain cells. Yeah, you thought we were done with the scary news? Oh, you naive child, we're talking about science news. There's always something terrifying right around the corner. Basically, researchers are discovering that human brain cells are actually quite cool and smart, and maybe even a bit better than computer chips in some respects. I know, computers not being the ultimate godlike beings of the universe? Ludicrous. So they want to start using human brain cells to do computing, which like, I don't know, do we really have to? Like I know all this AI stuff is incredible and has the potential to absolutely revolutionize everything about life, but also, do we reach a point where we're just making more powerful computers for the sake of making more powerful computers? Alright, well there's a few other things I could talk about, but frankly, I'm starting to run out of stamina again, so let's hit one more last fun story to wash our brains of the whole brain cell AI thing, and then we'll call it a day. Oh, what do we got here? Ooh, we have new evidence that dinosaurs used to sound like birds. That's adorable as hell. Based on the larynx fossils of a Pinacosaurus, Hope that's how you say it. I'm probably not. I don't know how to pronounce anything. I'm really bad at pronunciations. It looks like they would have been capable of making bird calls, which not only is this just incredible and the best news I've had all week, but it also obviously lends more credence to the idea that birds are the descendants of dinosaurs, which also, which also makes me overwhelmed with joy. So there you have it. That's a great place to leave for now. Go forth into your week thinking about the fact that dinosaurs may have been chirping like birds. Well, probably not exactly like birds, but you get the point. If you're lucky enough to hear some bird calls this week, think about the dino ancestors of such birds. With that though, I need to go, but thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. I love you. Remember to, take your, remember to take care of yourself and explore the universe. And I will see you next time. Smell ya later, turd hurlers. Oh.